I don't know about you guys, but I'm ready for springtime to get here. I mean, winter has run its course in my life, and I'm, I'm moving on. I'm, I'm putting up my winter clothing. I'm closing up the fireplace. I'm planning for warmer weather. And one of the things that I like to do in the springtime is just to get outdoors. And I don't mean like in my backyard mowing or anything. I mean, get out and go camping or hiking or um, white river rafting, canoeing, something like that, that gets me out of my man-made world and into God's creation. And I don't, I don't get to do it on a regular basis, but when I do, I really enjoy it. And I'll admit, I'm not a, a rugged camper type of person. Maybe when I was younger, I could do that. I mean, when, but when Leela and I first got married, uh, we tent camped and that lasted all of about two days. And, and then we started saving for a camper. Um, we've had a couple of campers over the years and, and I still like looking at them and, and looking at all the new features. And we'll go to RV shows sometimes, uh, just because we like to dream about camping. And the campers these days, they allow you to take all of the conveniences of your home wherever you go. And if you've got a nice camper, you no longer have to contend with sleeping in sleeping bags or cooking over a fire or hauling water from a stream to boil it. Uh, Now you can just park a fully equipped travel trailer on a cement slab in the middle of a few pine trees and hook up to a water line and a sewer line and electricity, cable TV, the internet... I mean, you don't have to mess with dirt floors and there's no more smoke from the fire and no more drudgery of walking to the stream or a nearby shower house. Now, it's possible to go camping and never go outside, right? We buy campers with the hope of of taking an adventure and just seeing new places and getting out into the world. And yet we equip them with all of the same furnishings as our living room. And so nothing really changes, We may drive to a new place and set ourselves in a new surrounding, but the newness goes unnoticed. Nothing changed because we took the old with us. But the thing that we're longing for, right, the thing we're dreaming about, this adventure, that really doesn't begin until you leave the old, comfortable patterns of living behind. It's such a great metaphor for a follower of Christ, this this spiritual life that we have. Our, Our new life in Christ begins when the comfortable patterns of the old life are left behind. We began this Epiphany series revealed about four weeks ago with Jesus asking his disciples to follow him, to leave their comfortable patterns of living behind and join him on this adventure. And since then, Jesus has been revealing to them and to the world, really, to us, that he is the Son of God. And this language and this concept of, of someone claiming to be the Son of God is, is something that many of us are familiar with, if you, if you grew up in church especially, you know. So Jesus is the Son of God. Okay, we, I'm good with that. We believe that. But Jesus is making this claim at this particular time to, um, to this Jewish community, you know, a people that were monotheistic. They, they believed in, in one God, Yahweh, and, and to claim to be the Son of Yahweh, or to be divine, or God himself, that was what they referred to as blasphemy, and it was punishable by death. But for the majority of the people in the world at that time, they believed in in many gods, and and their culture was heavily influenced by Greek mythology. 
And so it wasn't unusual for somebody to be the to claim to be the son of a god. Alexander the Great claimed to be the son of Zeus, and because of his military success, a lot of people believed that. And as fascinating as Alexander the Great and other larger-than-life kings and emperors and pharaohs were, they never stopped the wind and the waves by speaking a simple command to be still. They never gave sight to the blind. They didn't make a lame man walk again. And they sure didn't raise anybody from the dead. Only Jesus backed his claim as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Chosen One. We've spent most of our time in this series in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. But today we're going to skip on over to the ninth chapter where we receive perhaps the biggest revelation, with the exception of the resurrection, but this, this is the biggest revelation of Jesus the Christ. Here, we find a few of the disciples experiencing something that was really out of this world. In fact, I would argue that this is where heaven and earth met for a moment. Let's read Mark 9, beginning, beginning with verse 2 and reading through 10. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, so let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Today is what uh, is called Transfiguration Sunday. And if we're not careful, we'll kind of skip right over it because this just sounds like some big made-up churchy word. But here's the key to understanding the full meaning of transfiguration. The word for transfiguration used in the New Testament is the word translated by our English word, metamorphosis. So the idea is that Jesus changed into another form, something completely different. He didn't just change on the outside. He changed from the inside out. Let's picture our scene here on the mountain. Jesus went up on the top with Peter, James, and John. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. For a brief moment, the veil of Jesus' humanity was lifted, and the disciples saw Jesus, presumably, as he will be when he returns. The disciples had never met or seen Moses or Elijah before, but yet they knew who was standing before them. That's what revelation from God will do, and it can be a little frightening. It was clear that things were changing. What happened on that mountain is a turning point for the ministry of Jesus. In the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, from this point on, 
Jesus will set his face upon Jerusalem and journey there to die and rise again. This time spent on the mountaintop, which began in prayer, by the way, is what prepared Jesus for that journey, that that journey to life through death. Jesus was transfigured. This dazzling brightness which emanated from his whole body was produced by an interior shining of his divinity. Moses, which represented the law, and Elijah, which represented the prophets, both standing there, recognized the fulfillment of God's promise and affirmed Jesus' ministry as the Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This moment serves to identify Jesus as the new and the final mediator of God's rule and reign. When God said, this is my son, listen to him. He was literally saying that Jesus is now succeeding Moses and Elijah. Upon this declaration, both Moses and Elijah disappear, leaving Jesus standing alone. This is another one of those epiphany moments where heaven and earth come together. I heard a quote in our Bible study in the Vine University this past week that said, The point of the biblical story is not for everybody to ascend to heaven, but for the heavenly realm to come and transform the earthly realm. And isn't that what Jesus' message was when he showed up? He said, the kingdom of God has come near. I mean, this was some good stuff that was happening on the mountain. But why was it happening? In order to understand that, we need to see the transfiguration in the context of Jesus' entire ministry. And although he was and is the Son of God, while he was on earth, he was in the midst of a journey. A journey that was filled with mountaintops and valleys, with laughter and tears, with struggles and temptation, with defeat and victory. All of this real world stuff unfolded over the course of about 33 years of his life, and the last three years being specifically focused on teaching his followers what the kingdom of God was all about. Jesus had to adapt and change and modify his method of ministry according to his followers. If they didn't understand it, he would use a different example. If they couldn't see it, he would have to use another form of revelation. Good teachers always create an environment that is most productive for their students. Let me take our text for this morning as an example. Did Jesus need Peter, James, and John there in order to transform or for the transfiguration to occur? No, absolutely not. And that was going to happen with or without them. But Jesus wanted them there to witness it. He wanted them to see it. And if there was any doubt in the heart and the mind of Peter, James, and John about the identity of Jesus, it's gone now. Jesus knew that their journey would be full of ups and downs and challenges, just like his, just like ours, and that they would need experiences to draw upon in order to get them through it. I mean, what better experience than to witness Jesus standing in his glory with a couple of Old Testament legends receiving verbal confirmation from God? Jesus thought that this would surely seal their faith in him and transform their life in such a way that they would live a life advancing the kingdom of God no matter what the cost. The faith journey of the disciples that had led them up to the top of that mountain is a reminder to each one of us of the importance of seeking greater truths for living, to keep learning, to keep following, keep growing in Christ. When one sets out in faith, we never fully know the greatness of what is being revealed to us. 
When we open our hearts in prayer, lift our souls in worship, search God's word with an open mind, we're never sure where we might be led. See, keeping company with the divine can be dangerous to our way of thinking. We're not always ready for it. And perhaps our greatest challenge is to to change the way we think about the world and our faith and each other and the kingdom of God on earth. I mean, even the disciples had a hard time with this, and they were witnessing it live. While the transfiguration is happening, Peter was thinking, man, how can we make this moment last? Because this is awesome. Let's build some booths or some, some tents here. Let's just stay right here. Let's camp out. Who cares what's happening at the foot of the mountain? See, it was an attempt to, to preserve the experience without responding to what lay ahead in the journey. And how many times have we been guilty of this very thing? When we get comfortable with our Christianity and, and we like the way things are, we don't want to make any changes. We don't want to rock the boat. And without even thinking about it, we pitch some tents. We, we camp out as long as we can because we're comfortable. We haven't fully developed the skill to embrace the changes that God has in store for us. The transfiguration reminds us that things look different when one stands in the presence of God. It can be very unsettling. But if we expect to grow in our faith, we have got to position ourselves to God's guidance. The challenge for the three disciples, and the challenge for us really, is to to listen, to recognize those times when we encounter the holy, you know, the very presence of God, and to acknowledge that we're not in control, that something bigger is happening here. Something else is going on beyond us. See, you've probably had a mountaintop experience before yourself. In fact, the term mountaintop experience comes from those moments in the Bible when God revealed himself to people on a mountain, like the testing of Abraham with his son Isaac in Genesis, the receiving of the Ten Commandments by Moses in Exodus, the encounter that Elijah had with God in 1 Corinthians, in in 1 Kings, um, and and then, of course, the, the transfiguration of Jesus. None of these people were the same after their mountaintop experience. And whether it was a spiritual weekend retreat or a childhood uh, church camp, maybe a a week-long mission trip, or a moment just sitting in your living room surrounded by and engulfed in the grace of God, there's probably been a time when you were so moved by God and so on fire by the Holy Spirit that you didn't want it to change. But that mountaintop experience was specifically designed to give you strength for what's at the bottom. That, that, mo- that mountaintop experience was specifically designed to give you strength for what's at the bottom of the mountain. When, when Jesus and the disciples came down the mountain, they were met with a large crowd, Scripture says. See, the demands of the ministry, were they were still there. People were still hurting and struggling and sick and lost, and they were in need of the good news that a Savior had come. And another big challenge for for the Christian walk is to to go up on the mountain, encounter the Holy Spirit, and and then come back down into the valley. Dr. Zan Holmes, in his book, Encountering Jesus, he he calls Christianity a come-and-go affair. We come up on the mountain, but then we must go back down it again. We come in to worship, but then we've got to go out and serve. We gather together to study, but then we've got to scatter to go teach. It's a give-and-take relationship with Christ. We can't simply be observers 
and, the, and expect transformation to occur. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to be part of something bigger, something that is beyond ourselves, and, and it's not tangible. See, when we move from waiting for God to do something for us to participating in what God is already doing, that's when we're transformed. But still, there's something inside of us that tries to resist that change. It, it wants to pitch a tent and camp out and stay the same. But we cannot stay the same and go with God. We cannot stay the same and follow Jesus. In order for our lives to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, I think we've got to make some sacrifices. We've got to join Jesus on the journey, His earthly journey. When we made the decision to follow Jesus, what we really did was make the decision to join His struggle this Wednesday, as we've already mentioned, is, is Ash Wednesday. So this, this day begins this 40 days leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's actually a few more days uh, because we don't count the Sundays. We, we consider those many resurrection days. But this begins the, the season of Lent. And during this time, we, we can join Jesus and participate in the struggle and reflect upon what he went through for us. It's not enough to simply accept Jesus as our Savior without accepting the cost of discipleship. When we joined ourselves to Jesus, we made His death on the cross our death to sin. We made His resurrection our second chance at life. We made His compassion and love for the least, the last, and the lost our own love for the least, the last, and the lost. We joined our lives to Him so that we might rise above the mundane labels and expectations of our world and be the people of God, to be the people whose lives are so transformed by the power of Jesus that we too shine in His glory. For we can all aspire to be transformed. Surely we can do that. Right? This is one of the primary reasons we come to church in the first place, to open ourselves up to the changing power of God if you were not interested in having God change your life, I don't think you'd be here this morning. The church provides a place where the life of worship occurs. It's a place that provides comfort, encouragement, symbolism, liturgy, worship, and praise. But what it doesn't provide is the real world experience to which we are called to be embedded in so that we can make a difference in a non-believing world. The church is a place from which the people of God are deployed to go out and join Jesus in the struggle of everyday life and usher in the kingdom of God on earth. See, this right here, what we're doing today, this is the mountaintop experience. But we're called to live in the valley. And so when we leave here today, may we leave with the faith of Elijah, the discipline of Moses, and the light of Christ. Amen and amen.